Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism in your everyday life. I'm your host, Graham Colbertson, and I am back with a Q&A episode about politics and policy. You may not have noticed I was gone because I was able to get an episode out each of the past three weeks. However, I recorded all of those before these last few weeks because, as I mentioned, my daughter had surgery and I hadn't been able to record. I I must admit I've gotten quite anxious. This has already become a huge part of my life and I wanted to get back in front of the microphone, so I am back. So let's get started. Our first question. Do everyday anarchists bother at all with electoral politics? Is it more about showing people that politics can be an everyday thing in the form of community organizing and mutual aid? If so, what do we do to solve imperialism and climate change? No pressure. Okay, that question was from Dylan. Thanks, Dylan. No pressure. Um, Before I move on, I will say I didn't have time to type up all the quotes I'm going to use. I just got a stack of books next to me. So you're going to hear some book rustling. I'll try and edit out the rustling sound, but there's going to be a certain amount of rustling. So voting is hugely contentious in the anarchist tradition. Everyone, I think, has a vague sense that voting is not what we need to be doing, is not the best way to accomplish what we want to accomplish. But it's also clear that voting is very powerful and can do lots of things. And if you're trying to change society, it may be a tool that you want to think about. So let's look a little bit into this debate and then I'll give you my answer. So first, um, offering up the, as the book wrestling I told you about, don't vote theory, at least in the form of a joke, is David Graeber. This joke comes from his book, Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology. Question. How many voters does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, none, because voters can't change anything. You may have also seen the slogan. I think this is more of a Marxist slogan than an anarchist slogan, but it applies. If voting could change anything, they would make it illegal. I've read that quote tons of places. I don't know who the originator of it was. So if you do know, send me an email. This is a great joke, right? Voters can't even change a light bulb because voting doesn't change anything. This feels so true so often. It feels especially true right now. I'm recording this on Wednesday, November 3rd. One year ago, Democrats took the presidency, the Senate, and the House, and they promised all sorts of things that go in line with anarchism, especially, you know, higher taxes on the wealthy and corporations, and money, money to people who are renting and parents and caregivers, money to the people who make society work but are not rewarded for it. This is anarchism, giving people what they need to survive because they are the people who are making society. I'm also recording one week after, you know, some asshole senator in West Virginia said that, hey, none of that's going to happen because he doesn't want to. And I mean, what are you going to do? You just have to let senators do whatever they want. Those are the rules. And one day after the Republicans won back the Virginia governorship, and the Democratic Socialist candidate for mayor of Rochester lost to someone who wasn't even on the ballot. As we wait to see the Supreme Court destroy abortion in the United States. So this seems to me like a real strong answer for voting doesn't change anything. Donald Trump loses the vote, but he becomes president anyway. Donald Trump loses the vote and fails to become president, and the Democrats can't get anything done anyway. Does voting matter? I would say this is a dark time for voting. 
And if you are anarcho-curious, come on down to Team Anarchist because we are going to tell you that voting is definitely not the end-all be-all. But I don't want to throw voting out entirely. And for a really sophisticated view on that, let's go to Thoreau. Again, remember Thoreau is the inventor of peaceful, direct action, nonviolent protests. From Thoreau to Tolstoy, Gandhi, King. Here he is in his famous essay, Resistance to Civil Government. All voting is a sort of gaming, like checkers or backgammon, with a slight moral tinge to it, a playing with right and wrong, with moral questions and betting naturally accompanies it. The character of the voters is not staked. I cast my vote, perchance, as I think right, but I am not vitally concerned that the right should prevail. I am willing to leave it to the majority. Its obligation, therefore, never exceeds that of expediency. Even voting for the right is doing nothing for it. It is only expressing to men feebly your desire that it should prevail. A wise man will not leave the right to the mercy of chance, nor wish it to prevail through the power of the majority. There is but little virtue in the action of masses of men. When the majority shall at length vote for the abolition of slavery, it will be because they are indifferent to slavery or because there is but little slavery left to be abolished by their vote. They will then be the only slaves. Only his vote can hasten the abolition of slavery who asserts his own freedom by his vote. So here's all the reasons against voting. First of all, it's like a game. Politics has become a game by this time, which I think this is the 1850s. So that's that's not good if we're talking about morality. Morality shouldn't be a game in the sense of backgammon. It's fun to win, but it's okay to lose, especially when slavery is on the line. How can that be a game? But Thoreau says only his vote can hasten the abolition of slavery who asserts his own freedom by his vote. And I, this is a quote that I don't know exactly what it means. I've never studied it, but I think what he's trying to say is when you vote, do it because you think it's the right thing to do and then go out and protest and go out and act to make your vote a reality. So voting is one of the things you can do to make the world, the world of liberty that you want to see, but it is maybe the weakest one. And whether or not that's exactly what Thoreau means, that's what I'm going to take away from this. We should do anything to make the world more anarchist. And I think that includes voting. Now, let me give you a quote from Ruth Kinna from her book, uh, The Government of No One. She says that the goal should not be necessarily to create anarchist institutions. Anarchist institutions are good, but they also might be insular and not change anything. So what do we actually need to do? More book rustling. While the prospects for anarchism may seem bleak, I want to suggest the possibilities for anarchism should not be evaluated by the spread or reach of anarchist groups but by the adjustments anarchists can foster in non-anarchist organizations. Fostering anarchism in non-anarchist organizations. What does this look like? A few pages on, she says, and this is a longer quote, The anarchist conundrum is not about forcing a political choice between two modes of living, state and anarchy, but about motivating popular political, social, and cultural projects within the framework of the state system. It entails the replication and mimicry of alternatives that transform the services that states provide, not the replication of those services using different methods. And then she quotes a number of people whose French names I cannot pronounce and paraphrase them as saying, 
Anarchy is about anarchization. The practical puzzle is how to encourage groups and individuals to alter arrangements that they may well consider beneficial, even while acknowledging that they operate in imperfect and often alienating ways. Voting is frustrating. It is imperfect. It is alienating. Everyone has the right to vote, unless the government takes the right to vote away from you, as it does to all sorts of people, and also no one cares, and you can even win the vote, and Trump can be president. But the solution is not to say, get rid of voting, although that seems like a good idea in the long run. The solution is to make voting more anarchist. So you should vote, and you should vote in such a way that's going to make voting matter less. One of the ways that you will have to change things within the state system to anarchize the state system is via voting. Unless you think you can do a full-on 100% revolution that will eliminate the state system and bring the anarchist utopia. And I'm on record. I think that anarchist utopia is achievable, but not via a revolution. We've got to anarchize the government. Dylan talked about community organizing and mutual aid. And in this sense, yeah, it seems like there's amazing, it seems like there should be amazing potential to vote for things in your local community and make them happen. Frankly, I don't really believe in local politics. There's an old political slogan, all politics are local. I don't think that's true anymore. I think almost all politics are national for a couple of reasons. First of all, coming out of the debate over slavery, we ended up with the federal government being supreme. We renewed this debate in the 30s and 60s every time the left-wingers won, but somehow that meant that the federal government had more power. That means your local elections probably don't matter that much because some decisions made by a federal regulator are really going to affect what you can do with your roads or your schools or something like that. But even if you do have the power, and of course there is power that local governments have, no one cares about roads anymore. No one cares about schools, bridges, parks. They want to know, is their potential town councilman going to own the libs or own the cons? That's all anyone cares about. So Dylan, I would say, of course, vote in your local elections if you want to. But when I look at local elections, I see national politics that will not actually do too much. You know, I'm proven wrong from time to time, but that's the general sweep I see. What we need at the local level, I think, is community aid and organizing that doesn't happen from the government. But unfortunately, the government will not let you do too much of that stuff before it intervenes and demands a permit. And that stuff mostly lives at the federal level. So anarchize in government, but don't sit around and wait for the, your local government to get anarchized. You can just go out and do that right now. And then Dylan writes, oh, so, you know, what are we gonna do about imperialism and climate change if we don't vote? No pressure. Thanks, Dylan. Um, first of all, I think it's obvious that both imperialism and climate change are caused by things not being anarchism, right? Not being anarchist. And I would say, I guess, this is gonna be a really short answer and then I'm gonna move on because this is too big for me to take on in this Q&A. Yeah, I think... Um, you have to vote to dismantle imperialism and you have to vote to dismantle climate change because the government has just grabbed all the power related to industry and imperialism. And to dismantle that power, we need lots of protests and organizations, but also we need elected leaders. Remember, and I'll get to this in the next answer, everything is 
anarchism. If the police are beating people, it's because they are doing that cooperatively with one another. One police officer cannot stand down a mob. It's only because they are a team, a cooperative in mutual aid that they are able to do this sort of thing. Right now, most people believe in government. So if you can move government against climate change and imperialism, people will go along with that. I would much rather it not be via voting, but we've just got to keep anarchizing, keep up the process of anarchization rather than saying, oh, well, there's nothing we can do about imperialism because that would have to vote and anarchists hate voting. I think voting is a terrible idea. I also think you can vote for things to make government more anarchist. I'll talk more about that later. Okay, next question from Ben. I'm wondering if the role of a jury in the American legal system is a nod towards anarchistic ideals, as it can limit the power of the state by deciding the outcome of the case. Is it possible for any portion of the state's legal apparatus to be anarchistic? So first of all, Ben, referring to my last answer from Dylan, yeah, of course, everything works to some extent on anarchism. I mean, judges make decisions all the time based on mutual aid or just because they feel like it and, you know, they don't want to follow the law. That's the great lie of the law, is that there's nothing anarchistic about it. In fact, it's entirely anarchistic. I just listened to an episode of the podcast 99 Invisible where they were just discussing how, like, yeah, you know, judges just have to say common sense, like, oh, the law says this, but, you know, come on, that's not what it means. Let's do this other thing that's good. So, yeah, the legal system is super anarchistic. I'm working on an episode about the Supreme Court. I don't know the history of juries. Uh, I think it probably comes from some sort of Anglo-Saxon or Norse tradition in terms of how it got in the American system. There's also the, you know, Latin, the Roman, and then eventually Napoleonic tradition. And I don't think that uses juries in the same way. So I'm guessing it's a Germanic thing, but I would have to study the history of this. But absolutely, the jury is anarchism. And this is where, maybe I've introduced this term already, you get the anxiety of anarchism. A jury is just a bunch of random people who get to decide whatever they want and have to reach consensus to do it. That is anarchism. So this anarchistic thing in the midst of this system that's not supposed to be anarchist really freaks the state out. So what do they do? Well, first of all, they have jury selection, which means prosecutors and defense lawyers get to interview the jury and say, hey, no, you don't count. You're not part of the peer group today because we just don't like your ideas. So that's not anarchistic. Then there's death qualification or a death qualified jury. There was this amazing movement. I'll try and find a historian who can come and talk about it called jury nullification, which just said, hey, for something like a capital case, it's got to be 12 people agree. So just go on a jury and then just say, no, I'm not going to vote for the death penalty. Boom. As long as, you know, one in 10 Americans agrees to do this, there'll be one of those people on every jury. And that is the end of the death penalty. Now, that is anarchism. We cannot come to a consensus on the death penalty. So the death penalty is blocked. Awesome. So now they're allowed to ask you if you are planning on doing jury nullification or if you could ever see yourself voting yes for the death penalty. And you have to say yes, or you will get kicked off the jury. They're scared of anarchism. People are allowed to make their own decisions, except, you know, the state really wants to have the death penalty. So now you're not allowed to make your own decision if it might be not the death penalty. 
And then, of course, you know, I've personally never served on a jury, but there's just jury instructions. The judges tell the jury what they are allowed to think about and how they are allowed to make the decisions. That seems to be ridiculous and ridiculously un-anarchist, but that's precisely why. Juries are a site of clear and obvious anarchism, of grassroots democracy, of consensus decision-making in the American legal system. And for that reason, they must be constrained. If you haven't figured it out yet, the Supreme Court is just another jury. They're not made up of your peers, and they don't have to reach consensus. But no one has any power over them, and they get to decide whatever they want. This is a preview of the Supreme Court episode. The Supreme Court is anarchism hiding behind black robes and precedent. I will get there when I can. I am having a hard time keeping up with everything. I'm hoping that's just because of my daughter's surgery and the setback I had in my life. Okay, now, as far as whether you can and should actually practice jury nullification, well, I think if you don't practice it right now, they will throw you in jail because they're on to jury nullification. So I don't know how that works or if there's a jury nullification tradition alive today. Like I said, maybe instead of me doing an episode, I will try and find a historian of jury nullification and have them on the show. I think that would be exciting. Let me know if that sounds good to you, listeners. And if, if you email me that that sounds good, I'll put, you know, getting a jury nullification expert on the show, I'll put that on the front burner as opposed to the back burner. Okay, next question. Courtney asks, could you dive deeper into a couple of the names you dropped in episode one? I've never heard of David Graeber and would be interested to know where he is coming from slash how his experience shaped his beliefs about anarchism. Okay, so first I'm going to take this moment and you'll hear this from me again if you listen to all the episodes. I'm going to announce a new thing I'm doing. So next year, 2022, if you're listening to this in 2027, it's not next year, it's just a few episodes away. I am going to start posting some really important anarchist essays and then do a little episode where I talk about the ideas of, in that essay which you'll have a chance to read. I'm hoping to even record them as a miniature audiobook you can listen to. You can write me questions before I do that episode. And there'll also be a little miniature biography. So Goldman and Kropotkin will come first, and I've got plenty more in mind. Once I've got this more formally rolled out, I'll tell you a lot more about it. But that'll be um, one episode per month in 2022. So let me talk about David Graeber specifically. This will be my trial run of doing a little bio and main ideas for one of these thinkers. And I will do more of these for uh, 12 more thinkers in 2022. The first thing you need to know about David Graeber is that he comes from a working class radical family, which is pretty rare. Radicalization and education tend to go hand in hand. Of course, there are plenty of working class radicals, but in my experience, the majority of radicals are not working class and the majority of working class people are not radicals. You may know in the 1930s there was a Spanish Civil War. The Spanish Civil War, the right-wing government in Spain, was joined by all the fascist countries. But the left-wing government was not joined by any of the liberal democratic countries, so people just went to fight with Spain against fascism. And uh, the left-wing established the greatest and best ever anarchist government, <laughs> the best ever anarchist system of life and David Graeber's father went and fought in the Spanish Civil War. So that's the history of Graeber's family. 
He went to grad school. His PhD was in anthropology, and he went to Madagascar, which is a place that was colonized by the French. And he just discovered that the colonization had failed because the French never convinced the people of Madagascar that they needed the state. And that was his realization that although we assume for you to have a good functioning mode of life, at least in the 20th or 21st century, you need a state. But they didn't have a state. And besides his own studies, uh, his own firsthand studies, Graeber noticed that when you studied all sorts of people all over the world, they didn't have states. Having a state is this weird thing. At least having a modern state, a like post-1789 state, is just this weird thing that happened in Europe and then got exported everywhere and became so powerful that we forgot it was weird. So obviously, you know, if your father fought in the Spanish Civil War, you know about anarchism, but this was his academic way into anarchism. And then the thing he did that is most famous, although he is not most famous for this because he didn't want to take credit, was he coined the slogan, we are the 99%. He was a major part of the Occupy Wall Street movement, and he claimed that he coined only a third of it, and everyone came up with that slogan together, and it was mutual aid, which I think is undoubtedly true and great. But if you need to name one person who drove the ideas of Occupy Wall Street and came up with the slogan, it is David Graeber. And that was part of the alter-globalization movement, usually in the press called the anti-globalization movement, which is to say corporations want to trade all over the world. They create these, quote, free trade agreements. But there's actually literally billions of rules about trade, and they all benefit corporations. And then anarchists come and try and break up these meetings, and people say, oh, the anarchists hate globalization. That's why they call it the ultra-globalization movement. Like, globalization is awesome. It is wonderful that people can travel all over the world and that goods can travel all over the world, but corporations are doing it, A, for money, B, while destroying the world, and C, while restricting the freedom of everyone except for corporations. So globalization, awesome. What is called globalization by corporations and government, terrible. And that movement, the ultra-globalization movement of which Graeber was one of the leaders, revived anarchism in a way it really hadn't been revived since the 30s. Now, the next big thing in Graeber's life is he did not get tenure at Yale University. He is world famous. He was world famous. And Yale was just like, no, your work is not good enough. They were also like, you know, this guy's a jerk. We don't want to work with him. I've never heard anyone say David Graeber is a jerk, but I can imagine him being a jerk in meetings. Like he stands up and says, why are we having these stupid meetings? Let's help the people who are working in the cafeteria get more money. Boo, what a jerk. I think that's probably what the Yale faculty meant by we don't want to work with David Graeber. He's a jerk. Because he was more concerned with things like the wages for the poorest members of campus than like what coffee they were going to buy for the faculty lounge. That's what kind of a jerk Graeber was. Subsequently, he's written a ton of books, two of which became internationally famous. The first one is a book called Debt. I'm going to do a whole episode on it when I've got time. You've probably heard the story that once upon a time, one person had shoes and another person had cheese. So they had to trade. But then... A third person had to get involved because the person with shoes didn't want cheese and the person with cheese didn't want shoes, but there was someone else who had apples who was willing to trade the apples for shoes and then someone else was able to trade the apples for kiwis and the kiwis went to the 
cheese and this was all very confusing and then people made up money. Whew, wasn't that easier? This is ridiculously untrue, and for at least a hundred years, anthropologists have known it's untrue, but economists told this story because economics, sorry economists, but your field is bullshit. Economics is a mostly bullshit field where they just make up ideas about how they think things should work as opposed to looking at how money actually works. So Graeber looked at how money actually worked for the past 5,000 years and said everything in the field of economics was wrong. This upset some economists, but it convinced a lot of people and made Graeber world famous. But he got even more famous with this book called Bullshit Jobs. The basic premise is we don't need most jobs in society. Most jobs are pointless, but we have to have jobs because we've gotten rid of corporal punishment and all sorts of the things that normally keep people in line. So we have to use jobs to keep people in line. So supposedly you're free. This is a free country, right? Let's see. This is a quote from Bullshit Jobs. Well, this isn't actually Graeber. This is, uh, he's quoting someone else, a guy named Bob Black. Book rustling. The official line is that we all have rights and live in a democracy. Other unfortunates who aren't free like we are have to live in police states. These victims obey orders or else, no matter how arbitrary. The authorities keep them under regular surveillance. State bureaucrats control even the smallest details of everyday life. The officials who push them around are answerable only to higher-ups, public or private. Either way, dissent or disobedience are punished. Informers report regularly to the authorities. All this is supposed to be a very bad thing. And so it is. Although it is nothing but a description of the modern workplace. That's Bob Black, The Abolition of Work, quoted in David Graeber's Bullshit Jobs. And yes, I guess it's time for me to say it. I left my last job because I got reported by an informer for disobedience and was punished by higher-ups who answered to no one. The basic premise of Bullshit Jobs is that we are all enslaved in the classical definition of slavery, not the 19th century American chattel slavery, which is to say you have to do what someone else tells you to do. And if you don't, you starve and die. And that is what capitalism and especially the idea behind bosses has done to all of us. And in fact, this is well, well known. Everyone knows this, that jobs are a form of slavery. All the great abolitionists in the 19th century made this point. They called it wage slavery, including Harriet Jacobs, Lucy Parsons, and Frederick Douglass, all of whom were in fact born into African chattel slavery. Douglass and Jacobs especially rejoiced in being free and then realized, although they were free in some senses and their life was better than chattel slavery, in fact, needing to earn a wage was another form of slavery. Here's Douglas. Experience demonstrates that there may be a slavery of wages only a little less galling and crushing in its effects than chattel slavery, and that this slavery of wages must go down with the other. If you want to get rid of slavery, you have to get rid of jobs. Frederick Douglass, Harriet Jacobs, and Lucy Parsons knew that. Graeber's point is that even if you're a white-collar person making $100,000 a year, you are still enslaved. Your boss can get rid of you. And then, oh, well, you know, the people who normally make $100,000 a year, they can usually find another job, but what if they can't? What if all the bosses get together and decide not to hire them? Which can happen if the bosses talk to one another. I mean, this has happened to people 
then they can starve and die. So if your ability to eat depends on some higher up person deciding you did enough work to get to eat, you are enslaved. I don't think anyone disagrees with this argument. When you look at the people who pick our fruit um, or the people who make our clothes, these people are more or less enslaved. It's a different form of slavery, but wage slavery is a form of slavery. Take it from Frederick Douglass. But in fact, if you're a white collar worker, you are also experiencing a form of slavery unless you have enough money to quit your job and you can still eat. That's why the slogan, we are the 99% is so important because the top 10% or, you know, the 10 through 2%, those people are fine. They are happy. They have good lives and they always side with the 1%. That's why our country is so fucked because the top 10% side with the top 1% or the top 0.1%. But Graeber pointed out those people are also enslaved. Everyone is enslaved except for the billionaires. So instead of arguing about who we are going to take the money from to make sure everyone has enough health care, we should just get rid of jobs and give everyone food. And you know what would happen? Everyone would be happier, all 99%, except for the billionaires. The other big insight in bullshit jobs is that the more valuable your work is, the less you get paid. So what do billionaires do? Literally nothing. Once you get to a certain point, you do nothing and you make billions of dollars. How much do moms or other caretakers of small children get paid if they are their own children? That's what I'm doing right now. I get paid zero. So I'm doing the most important work in the world and I get paid nothing. Billionaires are out there destroying the globe and they get paid billions of dollars. Nurses do a very valuable job more valuable than doctors because they're actually keeping people alive with food and care. Nurses get paid a lot less than doctors. Wall Street traders make a lot more than doctors, but they don't have a chance of helping anyone. So Bullshit Job says we've got this continuum from people who care to small children to billionaires. How much do the billionaires help? Uh, they hurt. They hurt the entire world. How much do the people who look after small children help? They help enormously. How much do the billionaires get paid? The maximum amount. How much do the caretakers of small children get paid? Well, if it's your own children, none. We were talking about paying people who took care of their own children, but Joe Manchin decided not to do that. So thanks, Joe Manchin. Looking forward to my check not being in the mail. And if you do it as a job caring for someone else's small children, you get paid the least amount we can possibly pay you. So these two facts. One, it's not that payment is not given to the most helpful people. It's that payment is absolutely given to the least helpful people and withheld from the most helpful people. And two, that you cannot live in American society or Western society without a job, but jobs put you in Stalinist Russia, put you in a totalitarian position where you can say something on a Zoom recording that someone didn't like and they can report you to an administrator and then they can threaten to fire you and then you can worry that you're not going to be able to eat anymore and you can end up starting an anarchist podcast. And by the way, those people who threaten to fire you make way more money than you and are completely unaccountable to anyone. Well, that got a lot of people really excited about David Graeber's ideas. 
Okay, just a couple quick things about Graeber. I think I just geeked out about Graeber for a while, but David writes, I would like to hear you geek out on Graeber and why he is such an inspiration. Not a great question, but there you go. David, I think this is a great question, even though I just geeked out on Graeber. First of all, Graeber has a new book coming out. I don't know how much of he did before he passed away, but he wrote it with a co-author. So the co-author finished it. It comes out in about a week. I didn't get an advanced copy because, you know, I'm not famous. I'm a basement podcaster. As soon as I get my hands on it, it should be next week. I will start working on an episode on it and I will get that to you as quickly as possible. Everything falls behind the new David Graeber book. Sadly, probably the last new David Graeber book we will ever get. So look forward to that, David. <laughs> David, I'll be talking about David Graeber soon. Um, I also want to take you back briefly to the question about politics and read you a little manifesto David Graeber wrote about politics. In last week's issue of Anarchist Hot Takes, I wrote about policy, about the idea that people can just sit and make decisions, the quote, right decisions, because they are quote, very important people. And you guessed it, Yale. I really hate Yale. I think they kind of fly under the radar because of Harvard, but they're just as bad as Harvard. William Derisowitz, who is one of the heroes of education, quit Yale because it was such shit. They kicked David Graeber out because they were such shit. Fuck Yale. And um, let me read you this manifesto from Graeber. Against policy, a tiny manifesto. The notion of, quote, policy presumes a state or governing apparatus which imposes its will on others. Policy is the negation of politics. Policy is by definition something concocted by some form of elite, which presumes it knows better than others how their affairs are to be conducted. By participating in policy debates, the very best one can achieve is to limit the damage, since the very premise is inimical to the idea of people managing their own affairs. So to geek out on Graeber a little bit and to tie this back to Dylan's question, yeah, you got to vote. Because at least in voting, it's a chance for you to make some decisions. And the left wing lately has decided to do policy, not politics. Let's just hire the right person to make the right decision. They better have a PhD and it better be from Yale, Stanford, Harvard, I guess, University of Chicago. I don't know if that's really good enough to making a policy decision. We'll check University of Chicago later. Voting is imperfect. It sucks, but at least it says, let's get the people to be part of the process. And then when the people make a decision, the coercive apparatus kicks in. That's no good. But at least voting acknowledges that we should be part of this process. And policy says that just the people at Yale can do whatever they want. I imagine Graeber was at Yale. Let me check the date on this book. Yeah, Graeber was at Yale when he wrote this. So the idea of someone who was an elite, who was as almost elite as you can get, except for Harvard, saying this, that we do not need elites to govern us. Think of the career David Graeber could have had if he had just been willing to accept that he was an elite and other people mattered less. He had everything an elite could want. And they got rid of him because they knew that what he actually wanted was a better world for everyone. To geek out on David Graeber a little bit more and to answer Dylan's question, what should we vote for? It's very simple. The way to anarchize the government is to have the government give you money. It will fix 
everything. This is called a universal basic income. I will be doing an episode on this in January because MLK is one of the great advocates of the universal basic income. That one will happen. It's not like the Supreme Court one, which may someday happen. But as a teaser for UBI and to know what you should be voting for, which is to use the government to reduce the power of the government and the power of corporations, as opposing to use the government to fight the corporations, which just turns it into a war of governmental elites versus corporate elites. What you want is UBI. Here's Graeber on UBI. I can get behind basic income. Basic income might seem like a vast expansion of state power, since presumably it's the government or some quasi-state institution like a central bank that would be creating and distributing the money. But in fact, it's exactly the reverse. Huge sections of government, and precisely the most intrusive and obnoxious ones, since they are most deeply involved in the moral surveillance of ordinary citizens, would be instantly made unnecessary and could be simply closed down. Yes, millions of minor government officials and benefit advisors would be thrown out of their current jobs, but they'd all receive basic income too. Maybe some of them will come up with something genuinely important to do, like installing solar panels or discovering the cure for cancer. But it wouldn't matter if they instead formed jug bands, devoted themselves to restoring antique furniture, spelunking, translating Mayan, Mayan hieroglyphics, or trying to set the world record for having sex at an advanced age. Let them do what they like. Whatever they end up doing, they will almost certainly be happier than they are now, imposing sanctions on the unemployed for arriving late at CV building seminars or checking in to see if the homeless are in possession of three forms of IDs, and everybody else will be better off for their newfound happiness. Even a modest basic income program could become a stepping stone toward the most profound transmission of all, to unlatch work from livelihood entirely. A full basic income would eliminate the compulsion to work by offering a reasonable standard of living to all, and then either leaving it up to each individual to decide whether they wish to pursue further wealth by doing a paying job or selling something, or whether they wish to do something else with their time. Alternately, it might open the way to developing better ways of distributing goods entirely, Money is, after all, a rationing ticket, and in an ideal world, one would presumably wish to do as little rationing as possible. Obviously, all this depends on the assumption that human beings don't have to be compelled to work, or at least to do something that they feel is useful or beneficial to others. As we've seen, most people would prefer not to spend their days sitting around watching TV, and the handful who really are inclined to be total parasites are not going to be a significant burden on society, since the total amount of work required to maintain people in comfort and security is not that formidable. I have a lot to say about this. I'm going to leave it there. Graber can speak for himself. The last thing I have to say before I announce the creator of the theme music, I need your help. If you can give money, especially monthly, that's great. I'm going to need to make money from this podcast in the long run. But what I need right now is growth. If you can go to everydayanarchism.com and subscribe to the newsletter, that helps me enormously get my ideas out to you and to other people as the newsletter grows. Perhaps most importantly, if you have an Apple ID, stop right now, pull your phone out, and give this podcast a five out of five star review on Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcast reviews are the single most important thing for podcasts. It sounds crazy, but with a podcast as young as mine, Five extra Apple Podcast reviews, five or 10 or 20 extra five-star reviews could be the difference between my podcast surviving, my podcast growing, and my podcast dwindling and failing. 
If you like this podcast and you want to keep it alive, pull your phone out right now and give me a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much. All that's left to say is that the theme music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill, who is also the person who asked me to geek out about David Graeber. See you next time.